All right, you guys can be seated. GOC, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, grateful to uh, open the Word of God. Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, and the, the tonight will be in verses 1 through 5. Philippians 1, 1 through 5. Last week we looked at five reasons uh, why we need to study Philippians as a ministry, and I'm excited to begin that study tonight. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 5, we'll begin by reading our passage, Philippians 1, 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it is light for our lives. So would your spirit work even now to illumine our minds and open our hearts to what you would have for us. In Christ's name, amen. This past four weeks or so, uh, given that it's week three, everyone in this room, every man and woman and child, has had a common experience. It's really a welcome week, first couple of weeks of college, ritual that is like no other. It's a custom that we share here at GOC, but that is also shared across the campus. It's really sort of a tango of sorts between two people. And it goes like this in the form of four questions. What's your name? What year are you? Oh, you're old. What's your major? And where are you from, for extra credit? These four questions we've all been asked over and over and over, and hopefully it hasn't worn out on you because there's more coming probably. And I know I'm going to keep asking as I meet more of you guys, especially those of you who are new to our ministry. Uh, but Lord willing, also, it's led to some actual meaningful conversations and actual friendships. You see, you kind of have to start there. You've got to know the person's name, and uh, if they're from NorCal, it tells you something about them. They, they probably don't like the Dodgers like you do. Uh, and if they're a certain kind of major that's across the campus, they could probably benefit you in how you think about life. Uh, all kinds of benefit can come from these questions that seem so vanilla to our conversations these first few weeks. Well, that sort of wear pattern, this expected form to our conversations in the first few weeks of college, is similar to what we see here in these first few verses of Philippians. This kind of greeting is typical. It's ordinary, both of letters in the ancient world, commentaries have so much to say about 
the author and the recipient and the greetings and the variations between the different ones. Uh, but this is also typical, more specifically, of Paul. As you and I both know from reading his writings often. In fact, if you were to look at the book of Ephesians, for example, it, it's copy pasta. That's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe Paul calls himself something different in the other letters. He's uh, not just a, a servant, but he's also an apostle, whatever that means. Uh, but the point is that this kind of greeting is typical. And in fact, if you're anything like me, more often than not, when you read a Pauline epistle from beginning to end, or at least the first chapter, because that's what your Bible reading plan takes you to, uh, you kind of pass over these greetings like I do to be honest, right? You skip the, the front matter. It's kind of like a copyright page or a table of contents. It's easy to sort of autopilot past these few verses. But just like with your name and your year and your major and where you were born, there's actual substance and meaning to the information found in these verses and to that conversation about your name and your year and your major and your birthplace. At least I hope there is to you, because there is to me when I ask you those things. And the same is true of these first five verses of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. You see, while seemingly pedestrian, these verses give us a tremendous amount of truth, and they help us to see something specific that I want us to see tonight, and that's Paul's gratefulness in the gospel. Paul's gratefulness in the gospel. You see, these pleasantries, these formalities, are anything but. Because they give us a look into Paul's very heart as he addresses the Philippian church. But this is a heart that is not only Paul's. We see in these verses the heart that ought to be beating in the chest of every Christian. A heart of gratitude to God, a heart that specifically acknowledges God's work in other people and then expresses thanksgiving for that work. Thanksgiving and gratitude for the truth of the gospel itself and then also that which immediately flows from it, the relationships uh, the camaraderie, the growth. This is a heart. Paul's heart is, and I hope that our hearts will be. This is a heart that recognizes the source of all gospel fruit is God. Ironically, the lackadaisical attitude we have toward Pauline greetings in their form, we're used to reading them, is unfortunately the same attitude we have in regards to the content of these greetings. You see, while Paul is cognizant of God's work and he's thoughtful and warm in his greetings to the Philippian church and to all the other churches he writes to, we more often are thoughtless and cold and ignorant, sometimes willfully, of God's work in other people. We're so focused on ourselves. We're dialed in on only what's in our GCAL. What's going on with us and 
how we feel and what we care about. And so what is a cumbersome, maybe, or formulaic passage at first glance, I believe will be of incredible help tonight and a jolt to our souls in this sense. I think what is, for you sports people, a, just a normal kickoff to the season, the first, the first kick, I believe the Apostle Paul returns it for a touchdown. Because he shows his heart in an unexpected way for God and for the gospel and for gospel progress and for gospel partners. In this passage tonight, we see this truth that we must acknowledge God's work in ourselves and in others and express our thanksgiving to God. We must acknowledge God's work in ourselves and in others, and then express our thanksgiving to God. So tonight in these three verses, let's look at three acknowledgments, or three perspectives, three acknowledgments of a heart grateful in the gospel. Three acknowledgments of a heart grateful in the gospel. The first of those acknowledgments is in verse 1, and it's gospel affiliation, gospel affiliation. First, here in verse 1, we see the close connection, the close affiliation, Paul and Timothy and the Philippian church have because of the gospel. You see, they have a connection, but it's not just any old connection. It's a connection that exists because of the gospel. Look again at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Here in this simple verse, we see a picture of true partnership, a picture of true fellowship, of connection in a common faith. And we need to see a little bit of context as to exactly how all these people know each other. And to do that, we need to turn to Acts 16. Acts 16. Flip over there and see the story of how Paul first encountered the believers at Philippi and how even in this great chapter of Acts, um, we see Paul's relationship with Timothy begin. A beautiful picture. Acts 16, look at verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 5 first. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. In these first five verses, Paul meets young Timothy at Lystra. At this point, 
Timothy is probably somewhere around the age of 16, so he's young. And Timothy is, look again at verse 2, a disciple, uh, verse 1, sorry, a disciple, and then verse 2, well spoken of by the brothers in both Lystra and Iconium. It's about 20 miles apart, which in the ancient world is a long ways away. For us, it's kind of like saying, this brother's well spoken of in L.A. and Irvine, both. Both churches know him, both churches love the brother, think he's useful for ministry. And, And so Paul sees great ministry potential in this young man and begins to disciple him and take him along. And verse 5 shows us that the churches they visited were, look at there, it says, were strengthened in the faith. And you've got to believe that Paul, but also Timothy, had part in that, strengthening these churches in their faith. And then something unique happens as this missionary team goes about strengthening churches and preaching the gospel from city to city. Not one, but two times the Holy Spirit redirects this missionary team. It's the providence of God in the life of an apostle, something that we will never be able to experience. The Holy Spirit literally tells them, don't come this way. The Spirit of Jesus, it says in in verse 7, did not allow them. And so whatever that means... Paul and Timothy and Silas, and we'll talk about this in a second, but Luke as well, uh, they're redirected to go elsewhere. And in the night, Paul has a vision, and a vision of a man from Macedonia, who, look at verse 9, says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Real plain, real clear, come help us. And so in the providence of God, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, the doctor, Luke, uh, we know he was with them because in some of these passages, he writes we. It's the first person plural, so he's part of this group. And they head to Macedonia. Let's pick up back in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Notice here, Philippi is a leading city in the region of Macedonia. And notice too that it's a Roman colony, which is important for later. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate, uh, outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Normally, Paul would, when going from city to city, go to the synagogue to 
talk to the Jewish people there and convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. That was his method of evangelism that we see in Acts 14 and we can assume is elsewhere as well. But since in Philippi there was no synagogue, Paul and the missionary team think, well, what's the next best place? We've got to hear about where people pray because there's got to be people who pray here. And so they find the local prayer meeting and have this evangelistic encounter with Lydia and her household. And I am, I don't know about you, I am struck by verse 14. The end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You see, what was likely said by Paul is, what we see throughout the book of Acts. It's the truth, specifically about Jesus, how he was the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, and how his death and resurrection was and is good news for sinful man, that if you place your faith in him and trust in his person and in his work, your sins can be forgiven. That's the gospel that Lydia heard that day and the Lord opened her heart to. And this same gospel is for us. And so in Philippi, the first gospel affiliation, the first gospel connection is made just outside the city gate. Paul's next encounter in Philippi is a wild one. We won't read it, but Paul and Silas and Uh, you can assume the others, Timothy and Luke, are on their way to the prayer meeting and they get interrupted by a servant girl who had a spirit of divination, it says in the text. And uh, she made her owners, as a servant girl, her owners, she made them a fortune by fortune telling. You see, she would fake it to make it in people's questions and People would believe with the spirit of divination she must be telling the future and they would give all of their earnings to her owners. And on their way to the prayer meeting, this girl follows them and it says in verse 18, she kept doing this for many days and she would follow Paul and the missionary team and yell, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation which is awesome because a servant girl is proclaiming the truth of the gospel for Paul. But here in this text, it gets to the point where Paul himself, it says, having become greatly annoyed. Now, don't take that as license to be annoyed at people. But Paul's annoyed. And and for him to be annoyed at the fact that uh, a girl is shouting that this man has the way of salvation, and he's annoyed, it's got to be something. I I can't even imagine. And so eventually these owners uh, see, uh, okay, our girl is not doing her fortune telling anymore. She's following these guys shouting about them and using her spirit of divination to tell the truth about them. And Paul gets so annoyed that he exercises, exorcises the spirit of divination out of her in the name of Jesus. And it says in verse 18, and it came out that very hour. Now, her owners aren't happy because there goes their profit. 
And if you fast forward a little bit, Paul and Silas specifically, those two end up in the Philippian jail. And they're stuck. It must feel, when you're doing missions work like Paul was, to be sort of a dead end if you're in jail. But God had other plans that day. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with but Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house and he took them and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once he and all his family then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God you see out of these crazy circumstances comes a golden gospel opportunity the Philippian jailer goes from contemplating death because he's lost all his prisoners to new life in Christ. Again, I'm struck by this simplicity in the gospel. He, he asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they simply say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they declare Jesus to him. Grace on Campus, that's what we're trying to do in a few weeks, both on a Friday night, but throughout the week. We simply want to proclaim to those lost in a dying world on our campus in darkness that all you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so we'll get those opportunities. And Lord willing, there will be many who come to know our Savior just like we know. But that's the opportunity that Paul and Silas get with this Philippian jailer. And at the, end of six, at the end of chapter 16, if we continue the story, the magistrates let Paul and Silas go, um, but not before realizing they're Roman citizens. And so the fact that Philippi is a Roman colony traps these magistrates into realizing they really not just need to let these guys go, they need to let them go with some encouragement to not come back and not to tattle and not to get them in trouble. If we follow the story of Acts, Acts 20 shows that Paul visited Philippi at least one, if not maybe even two more times. Uh, we won't go there to see that, but there's some passing mention of him going through the region of Macedonia twice, and we can sure believe that he would have visited these Philippian believers again at least once. And again, we'll see this in the book of Philippians, his heart and why we might believe that he's seen them quite a few times throughout his life. So here in Acts, in, in Philippians 1 as well, we see Paul 
saved radically on the road to Damascus, a story that we'll look later at as we get later in Philippians. Uh, Paul, this former persecutor of the church, uh, now, in Philippians 1.1, a servant, a slave, the word doulos of of Christ Jesus. The the connotation of this word slave is uh, somebody who is completely and willingly devoted to do his master's bidding. And so notice, if you flip back to Philippians 1.1, Paul identifies deliberately, not as an apostle, but as a servant, as a slave. He's not an apostle here, although he is, but a humble and willing servant of King Jesus. And guess what? Timothy is a doulos as well. A servant, a slave. And not just because Paul is, but because Acts 16 says Timothy is a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. All followers of Jesus are servants of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you must be willing to do His will. And so Paul and Timothy, fellow servants of Jesus Christ, have this gospel affiliation with one another. And as Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he has in mind the gospel connection that he and Timothy have, not just with each other, but with the Philippians as well. This is a brotherhood built on the sure hope found in Christ. This is camaraderie forged from a common cause of gospel progress. This is friendship formed because of friendship with God. Not just with the leaders. Notice at the end of verse 1, not just the leaders of that burgeoning church, but with all the saints in Christ Jesus. All the saints. Now you can notice, just for fun, the distinction and the function of both overseers, a word for shepherds or pastors, and then also deacons, uh, another cool word in the New Testament that talks about people who serve. And so there is distinction there, but notice Paul's addressing all the saints. And this affiliation that Paul and Timothy and these believers have is no superficial connection. You see, this isn't just because you're from the same place or you have the same major or you're the same year. Maybe you even have the same name. This isn't just liking the same music or living in the same building. This isn't just camaraderie because you're Dodgers fans or the spirit of being a true Bruin that brings you together. This is affiliation far deeper and far more meaningful, and far more impactful. This is gospel affiliation. That's not to say that connection isn't possible through all these other things we just talked about. But it is to say that gospel affiliation ought to have roots far deeper in our hearts with one another than these other kinds of connections. I'm willing to bet that most of you have a friend or a family member 
who likes Star Trek. You laugh because you do. Now, the ones who are really into it, they're called Trekkies. I learned today, that's actually like, to some people, like slightly disrespectful, they prefer Trekkers, which is like, sounds like part of Adventure Club, it's Trackers or Trekkers, but Trekkers or Trekkies. These are devoted fans of the Star Trek franchise. Some of them believe only in the originals. They know Klingon, and they make endless references in everyday conversation to the original Star Trek series. Maybe you hear these in your lab or whatnot without even knowing that they're Star Trek references. And that's exactly what a Trekkie wants from you, is to not even know. Beam me up, Scotty. Make it so. Live long and prosper. That is illogical. These people flash the Vulcan peace sign and collect, or depending on your view of things, hoard memorabilia. Their bedrooms look like they're still teenagers. And of course, these people, these Trekkies, gather for Star Trek conventions in full costume. If you know a Trekkie, whatever you do, don't mention Star Wars. At least don't say that it's better. I don't know if you've ever seen two people like this, Trekkies or maybe fans of something else unique like Star Trek. But if you've ever seen two Trekkies randomly meet, it's fireworks. I mean, these people go off and talk about which the, the last conventions they've been to and uh, compare pictures of memorabilia. Uh, it is absolute fireworks. The kind of affiliation and instant connection that Trekkies have should, should pale in comparison to our gospel affiliation with one another. But to our shame, fake Kirk and fake Spock, who just met at the convention in Anaheim, have a visibly and seemingly stronger bond than sometimes you and I might have on a Sunday morning. The kind of connection we have with one another as Christians is a connection far greater than any other kind of human connection. It's an affinity that lasts in, into eternity. It's an affiliation held together by the unbreakable bond of belonging to Jesus. And so while it may not be natural and normal for you, you may not feel like you have a connection with other Christians at first. Consider Paul's posture here as he greets these friends in the faith. Uh, one that readily acknowledges gospel affiliation that all the saints in Christ have with one another. That's our first acknowledgement of a heart grateful in the gospel. Uh, the second acknowledgement of a heart grateful in the gospel is gospel gifts. Gospel gifts in verse 2. 
we must acknowledge the gifts given to us in the gospel. And Paul continues his formal greeting, these good tidings. In verse 2 is Paul's ordinary greeting. And in it, there is a simple but poignant reminder of truth that is anything but ordinary. Of the grace given through salvation in Christ and the peace that we have with God. You see, the truth in verse 2 is the very backbone of the gospel affiliation we just talked about. And to the Philippian audience, reading this letter, probably aloud in their gathering, uh, there is, I can imagine, an audible pause. Just the second sentence into the letter. Uh, there's a moment of appreciation and pondering of the truth as these words are read out loud. You can just hear the voice of one of the older saints in the congregation reading aloud what to us is age-old truth, but to them is fresh bread in this era of the church. Imagine the awe and wonderment and the worship at new believers in the first generation of the church as they hear grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what the Ephesian church heard. It's a different version of what the Corinthian church heard and the Thessalonian churches heard. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first, very clearly, the source of this grace and peace. It's from... God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes grace and peace so sweet. It's divinely given. It's God wrought. It's what we say is monergistic. It's one-sided. It's a gift. And we have no part in that gift except the receiving. Notice here, it's not only given of the Father, but it's given from the Lord Jesus Christ also. Now, to clue you in, this is reminiscent of Paul's theological construct throughout this book. His thinking of the equality and the unity of Jesus with the Father. So in part, it's that. But perhaps more simply, it's this, that grace and peace is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that the Father's work of redemption is accomplished through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what's gospel grace? It's this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the grace that is ours from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's undeserved favor. One theologian says it's God's love for the unworthy. This is the free gift of salvation to us, the undeserving. You know where that's from. That's Ephesians 2. Turn there, because we need to see something else in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, and then look at verse 13. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is gospel grace in Ephesians 2. And this is gospel peace that is ours from God and ours from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Ephesians 2, Paul is also talking about a different kind of peace, admittedly. So we have peace not just between Jew and Gentile, as Paul is addressing, and that's a sermon for another time. But he also talks about peace with God. It's this access in one spirit to the Father, that we are no longer strangers and aliens, no longer enemies of God, but now members of the household of God, adopted into his family, made his own. And so we are no longer at enmity with God, but now in the gospel at peace with him. Romans 5.1 says it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What beautiful truth. This is gospel grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Lydia's eyes were opened to. This is what the Philippian jailer believed that fateful day. Grace and peace, oh how can it be the matchless king of all paid the blood price for me? Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring. The vilest 
sinner's heart can be cleansed, can be free. Oh, what an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. Here in this verse, verse 2 of gospel greeting, this verse we ordinarily breeze through in our reading, we find a wonderful summation of gospel truth, a fresh reminder of grace and peace that is for those who are in Christ. There's a third acknowledgement that we need to make if we're grateful in the gospel, and that's gospel affections. We've seen gospel affiliations and gospel gifts, and now in verses 3 to 5, gospel affections, gospel affections. Here in these verses, we see Paul's genuine love for and thanksgiving for these brothers and sisters in Christ. This is affection, emotion, rooted in the gospel. Look at verses 3 to 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Here we see gospel affections, uh, love, admiration, appreciation that is pure. You see, this is the acknowledgement of gospel affiliation and gospel gifts commonly shared, but now applied, affections applied and cultivated. And now Paul shows us an example of expressing that affection to one another. This is Paul saying, hey, I've been praying for you. And he uses here deliberately, thoughtfully, valuable papyrus real estate to do this. I mean, he could be unpacking all he unpacks in Romans here, but he takes the time to say, I thank God for you. Constantly. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. And so this is genuine encouragement. This is not just Paul juicing somebody up, not just the kind of exaggeration or flattery that we're so used to doing as we encourage one another. Oh, he's the best. Oh, he's a beast. You know, like, he's awesome. No, this is Paul being specific, as we'll see throughout this letter, about his encouragement, and genuinely so, in gospel gratitude. These are true thoughtful, grounded words of affection expressed in these verses. Now it's clear just to know that this is now just Paul speaking here. It's about as much grammar I want to do tonight. It's first person singular, and so it's no longer Paul and Timothy in the writing sense of things. It's I, singular, thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. It's Paul speaking personally and intimately and individually. Verse 5 is the core of this whole idea, and it shows us the reason for Paul's thankfulness for the Philippian believers. Their faithful, look there in verse 5, faithful partnership in the gospel. Uh, This word partnership is actually the word that we often know as fellowship, koinonia. It's a common participation, a sharing of 
gospel truth. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8 really quick, and I want you to see something. Uh, because we need to see the nature of this partnership in the gospel. What exactly does Paul mean when he says there was a partnership or a fellowship in the gospel? What does this look like? What, what do the feet of this do? 2 Corinthians 8, look at verse 1. And Paul's writing here, now to the church in Corinth. Remember this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Pause there. Remember, Philippi is what? A leading city, a Roman colony in Macedonia. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now, the Philippian church, this church in the leading city in Macedonia, uh, isn't the only church in the region of Macedonia, so there's probably other churches being referenced here. Uh, but you've got to believe that there's, they certainly had a significant part in this ministry, especially in the way that Paul thanks them in the book of Philippians even, as we'll see. Uh, the Philippian church in 2 Corinthians 8 had given, despite their lack of resources, at Paul's request, a what he calls their wealth of generosity such that it was an example to the Corinthian church. And Paul is using them as an example and saying, hey, church in Corinth, if you'd like to follow suit, God loves a cheerful giver. No pressure, but here's some gospel pressure. Uh, give, if you will, because that's what these churches did. And in fact, consider this church in Jerusalem that needs your help. Uh, these believers need your help to continue gospel ministry there. Uh, and we all know how Paul goes and talks about what it means to give of ourselves, give of our resources in 2 Corinthians. Uh, but the thing to draw from there is uh, that the Philippian church had a very real and tangible uh, koinonia, partnership in the gospel. And Paul sees it very much that way. I want you to notice something, though, here in, in 2 Corinthians 8. What prompted these dear saints at Philippi to give? What made them want to supply what was needed for the Jerusalem church in the exemplary way that they did? The answer is in the text, as it often is, as it almost always is. Look at verse 2. It was out of their abundance of joy. You see, despite their affliction, whatever that was, and despite their own poverty, Paul goes to even point out, their joy in Christ overflowed. Their affection for Paul and for the Jerusalem saints, some that they had not even met, and their joy because of 
the gospel was the defining factor in this. You see, they weren't overly concerned with their own wants and needs. They weren't thinking about what they might get out of it if they gave. They, they weren't waiting until they had a stable income and enough job security. These brothers and sisters at Philippi saw a need in the gospel cause and sought to fulfill it out of an abundance of joy in the gospel. And so it's with this kind of history, these kinds of reference points, waypoints, probably just one of many instances that Paul has in mind as he writes Philippians. It's with this in mind that he reflects thankfully to God in Philippians 1, for the Philippians church partnership in the gospel. And as he does so, Paul himself is filled with joy. He says that himself. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. From the riverbanks outside the city gate on that Sabbath day until here, now, 10, 12 years later, the support and partnership is called to mind as Paul writes and overflowing in his heart with gospel affection. And for Paul, in a dark Roman prison awaiting trial 800 miles away from the church in Philippi, this camaraderie in the gospel is one of the few but mighty threads of soul-strengthening encouragement that he can draw from as he awaits trial. This partnership, this fellowship in the gospel. Notice the direction of Paul's gratitude in these verses. Paul expresses his thankfulness to God because he knows that to experience gospel fellowship, partnership, is a result of having a common faith, a shared participation in gospel grace and peace. And that, as we just saw, is attributable only to God. And so Paul thanks God. For Paul, notice also there is a constancy to this. Look at verse 4. Always in every prayer. You see, as much as Paul's heart is swelling in this moment with joy and affection, this isn't just this moment. He prays for and about them constantly. Paul is consistent in his prayers for these dear saints. There is a faithfulness, a regularity, a constancy to these prayers. Now, Grace on Campus, I can't help but wonder how little it is that we pray this way. That how rare it might be that you think about gospel grace and peace extended to you and extended to those around you, even in this room. How rare it might be that you go to God in prayer simply to thank Him for all of His kindness to you and to me and to others. I would venture to guess in examination of my own heart this week that it's unfortunately quite rare that we do this. Because I know the status of my own heart. Ungrateful, thoughtless, dry instead of overflowing, 
devoid of this kind of warm gospel affection that we see here? And so if our hearts are more quickly critical and self-focused and tepid toward others, why would our prayers be any different? Why would we express warmth and gratitude and affection about others to God? And in our everyday words, in our conversations, do we think of one another in these terms and speak to one another words of grace and peace that we have with God? Words of encouragement? Words of affirmation in the Gospel? I think too many times we assume that anybody who mentions scriptural truth outside of a church setting is spiritually a buzzkill or doing too much. I mean, sometimes even the ride back to Westwood after church is too much. Talk about something else already. But the truth of God and the beauty of the gospel and the love we have for Christ and for one another ought to be on the tip of our tongues in prayer first and foremost and then in our speech also. There's a sign just as universal as the welcome week questions we talked about earlier. It's a sign of something that you've all encountered. Maybe you use it yourself. It's having your headphones in or on. It's just me, my AirPod Pros, and bomb shelter. It's just me and my pizza and my jams. Headphones in? What does it mean? Don't bother me. So when someone comes to talk to you, it's hesitantly taking one out and saying, okay, well, hey, how's it going? Cool. Great. I had classes today too. Awesome. Pepperoni's getting cold. Cool. All right. Jams. Unpaused. Headphones in. Don't bother me. We, too often, have our headphones in, so to speak. Our hearts are closed off. Not just to one another, but to this spirit of acknowledgement that we see in these first five verses of Philippians. This acknowledgement of God's work in ourselves and in others. Uh, we're not able to express the thanksgiving that we've seen here in this passage. And so, Grace on Campus, and my heart from this passage tonight is that would we with joy let the gospel, uh, truth that is ours in Christ Jesus, bubble over with warm affection in our hearts and therefore ever more so be on our lips in prayer and in our conversations? Would God grow our hearts' appreciation for the gospel and therefore our affections for one another, for brothers and sisters in the gospel, and that we would pray thankful prayers to God and then also speak words of encouragement and reminder to one another. It's Philippians 1, 1 through 5. That we would have gratitude in the gospel that acknowledges God's work and then expresses thankfulness. We usually end our time singing to God, and we will in a second, but I think it's especially helpful to do so tonight because I want to read Colossians 3. It, it, it attaches what we do in singing with what we 
want to see in our hearts as we examine Philippians 1, 1 through 5. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through 